You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. They offer just about every battery under the sun, from car and truck batteries to batteries for your trail cameras and rangefinders. Select retail locations even offer cell phone repair and cracked screen repair. Find a local retail location at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. What's going on, everyone? You are listening to the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and this is episode number five. In this episode, we're talking with Josh Merceberger from Merceberger's Rut, Strut, and Stream Taxidermy. He's also part of the Midwest Whitetail Pro Staff, and he appears on the Midwest Whitetail Great Lakes Show. I met Josh about a year and a half ago. He did a, a tail fan mount for me uh, for my very first turkey, actually. He was uh, he was super helpful. Uh, he does fantastic taxidermy work. If you're looking for someone who does a great job at a fair price in southern Wisconsin, Josh is your guy. Uh, when it comes to whitetail hunting, he really, really knows his stuff. He takes uh, a little bit of a different approach than what is popular and mainstream right now. Uh, he's a little bit more conservative. You know, right now everybody wants to talk about the running gun. Everybody wants to talk about hunting super aggressive. Josh takes a more conservative approach. Uh, which uh, not a lot of guys do unless you've got pristine land. And we oftentimes think that that's uh, not available to those of us who have uh, maybe don't own a whole bunch of land. But Josh has a wall full of big bucks to prove that uh, his way of hunting still gets it done. And so I'm excited to hear from him today. Uh, here in this episode, he shares a story of a deer that he took last year, an absolute stud of a buck that he killed last year, scored right around 160. Um, I got to poke his brain a bit about his style of deer hunting, got to talk a little bit about taxidermy and what you can do as a hunter from the moment you take that shot and your animal's on the ground, how you can uh, effectively cape that animal and get it to the taxidermist and create the best mount possible. And we even talk a bit about getting into filming hunts. There's a, a ton, ton of good information in this podcast. And uh, I think we're actually going to have Josh on again here in uh, pretty soon to take a deeper dive into some of the really good stuff that, to be honest, we just kind of barely scratched the surface on. And so uh, looking forward to uh, listening to this conversation again, but also having him on again here in a couple of weeks. Uh, before we dive in, though, I do want to uh, do a little housekeeping. First of all, make sure, if you haven't already, to follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're accessing this podcast. Leave us a review. 
Let us know uh, what it is that you want to hear, how we can improve this podcast. Check us out on Instagram where you can stay up to date with all the things that we're doing to get ready for the 2021 whitetail season. We're going to start posting some content here pretty soon. Uh, Send us a message on there. Let us know topics that you'd like for us to explore or let us know how we can make this a more helpful resource for you as a Wisconsin sportsman. So with all of that out of the way, let's jump into our conversation with Josh Merceberger. All right, joining me now live in his taxidermy shop is Josh Merceberger. Josh, how are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, When I first started thinking about uh, doing a podcast based on the state of Wisconsin and hunting and fishing here, uh, you came to mind pretty quick because you did a turkey for me. Uh, My very first turkey yeah actually first one i ever got so uh brought it to your shop a buddy of mine was uh getting some deer that he and his uh, son had shot the season before uh, and they had brought them out of the freezer and brought them over here to you and uh, they took me out and we got a turkey that morning and they said hey if you want to get this tail done right take it to josh and so uh yeah Yeah, they know what they're talking about (laughs) that's that's right they know they know what they're saying so well you know it was funny i walked in the shop and uh i looked at you and i was like i know this guy from somewhere. Yeah. And I don't know where I know him from. I, I know him from somewhere. I've seen his face before, but I'm not from Wisconsin. So how in the world could I have possibly seen him before? But come to find out, you film for Midwest Whitetail, yep. which would be where I had seen you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you and uh, what it is that you do? All right. I uh, own a taxidermy shop called Merceberger's Red Strut and Scream, and it's uh, located near Broadhead, Wisconsin. And I am a pro staff for Midwest Whitetails for the Great Lakes region. So this fall, I was lucky enough to get a really nice 11-pointer that scored about 160. So I was very pleased about that. And uh, I can go into detail if you want me to. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, tell us, tell us about the hunt. How did, it, how did it unfold? So October 3rd, I got the first picture of this buck in my food plot. And as time went on in October, he started showing up all over. Um, on the edge of alfalfa fields, hitting scrapes. So I knew I was putting stands pretty much everywhere I was getting pictures of him. And he was so frequent. And I had three encounters with him prior before I shot him, October 23rd, 24th, and the 28th. And my encounter on the 28th, he was coming in nice. I was sitting in a, a blind, and a white cat came out and spooked him. Just a house cat. Just a house cat, just out of the blue. And so like the least threatening thing that could walk out. Yep. Okay. Yep. He was coming in nice, probably like 15-yard shot. I've never been that close to a deer that size in a ground blind. He looked absolutely enormous. Jeez. So when he was coming, he spooked on that cat, and he just didn't spook. I mean, he ran his full tilt across the road, and I thought, I may not see this deer again. So then five days went by, and there was no pictures of him. And I was starting to get nervous. And so I started just hopping areas around here as much as I could, trying to see if I can run into them. I kept checking cameras and nothing. And so on November 2nd, my brother and I filmed a really nice buck, an eight-pointer, and he's with a doe. And there was like 10 other does out there. And I figured, well, my brother and I talked. We hunted November 3rd, the morning or the morning of November 3rd, we hunted my food plot and it was one of the worst hunts I've had during the rut. 
never, never saw a deer. It was just terrible. Wow. I saw one coyote. And usually my food plot's got deer in it every morning, every evening. So I don't know what the problem was. But so I, we talked it over and we said, well, November 3rd, we're going to go sit where we saw that eight and saw a lot of deer. So maybe we'll, you know, can run into him. He was running that area the year before. So we were sitting there and a small buck came out and then a doe and a, like a, a doe and a fawn come out to my right. And my brother's like, there's a doe. And I looked behind and I could see, we called him wide load. My wife actually named him wide load. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. He is. What it, so what's the width on that thing? I mean, he's, he's, he's a, 24 inches wide. 24 inches yeah. He's wide, the so widest deer I've ever two seen feet wide. Yeah. He, he's impressive. Yeah. Like you get the rack in your hands. That's impressive. So when he, he was just standing there and the doe picked me trying to get my bow and she bounded and I thought the gig was up, but the fawn just kept right on coming and he stood there. And when she kept going out, he made the decision to come in and he gave me about a 15 yard bunny shot that I was able to put a great hit on. And he tipped over 50 yards from the tree. And I was just, I couldn't believe it because we didn't have any pictures of him for five days. I thought maybe he got on a doe left, didn't know what happened. And all of a sudden he disappears and I mean, just gives me a great shot. So yeah. he's a, a super, super impressive deer, heavy, uh, all the way through his rack. Uh, what was the weight on the deer? And he weighed 256 pounds. We went over to a weigh station and, uh, the guy was really cool about it. He let us take it off the trailer and put it on there and drove oh, the truck cool. off. And now is that dressed? No, that was live weight. On the hoof, okay. Yeah. In, uh, in Alabama, where I'm from, we never weigh our deer dressed. We don't feel dressed deer. We just grab them and throw them in the back of the truck, which you can do when the deer is 135 pounds yeah. on the hoof. Uh, you know, it's just a very different kind of thing. So you primarily hunt southern Wisconsin? Yes, I hunt three counties, Dane, Rock, and Green. Dane, Rock, and Green County. Yep. Okay, okay. I've... I've noticed one thing that the trend here in Wisconsin is to head north. Everybody wants to go north to their hunting, hunting property. Yeah. Um, I've never quite understood that because there's very big deer down in this area yeah. and just the travel time and I don't know, just the convenience of it. There's a lot of land around here and it's tough to get on because I believe all the, the population and everybody wants to hunt close. So, but there's, some great hunting around in these areas. Yeah. How many kids do you have? I have three. Three kids. I've yeah. got three kids as well. What are, what are the ages of yours, if you don't mind me asking? Seven, four, and two. Okay. So I've got, a, yeah. I've got a six, just turned five, and a two, about to be seven, five, and three. Oh, yeah. So we're right in the same boat. Uh, if you've got kids, driving three or four hours north to hunt is kind of out of the question yeah yes it is <laughs> you need to be home for dinner yeah, or you're gonna be divorced time. that's that's right yeah <laughs> if you want to stay married my advice is start hunting somewhere closer to home yeah uh but that's you know that that i don't think can be replaced so uh most of your hunting takes place on private permission land leased land public land what i own a little less than 25 acres but the rest is all permission Okay. private land okay that i hunt and you're from this general area your wife is from this general area as well so yep. you guys have some uh some connections or is yeah it- I, I hunt on in-laws which is you know very convenient and nice. <laughs> 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 but uh otherwise i go out and i knock on a lot of doors every summer i try to gain at least one or two uh pieces of property but i hunt mostly small parcels of acreage okay um, what, what do you consider small um 
Well, like a lot of them are like five, 10 acres. Oh, okay. So yeah, real the, small. The biggest woods I hunt is 43 acres. Wow. So, and I, and there's also three different fence lines that I hunt in between two big woods. So when they're cruising, I get a lot of action, like all day sits them trying to go from one woods to the next. Okay. So you're, you say you, you hunt a lot of fence lines. So you're, uh, you're just setting up sort of in these connecting strips of, if, of cover yep. and you have a lot of success doing Oh yeah. That. Yeah. I've looked at a lot of these pieces and, you know, coming from the deep South where, uh, you know, we were in a club for a long time, uh, which down there we have a lot of hunting clubs, which means a bunch of guys got together and, and got a lease. Um, I've been in clubs with 3,600 acres, 1,500 acres, uh, 2,500 acres. And that's kind of the, the normal thing down there. So when I moved up here and I start seeing like a big crop field with a, a 30 yard wide strip of timber running through the middle of it, I think you can't hunt that. And then I started hunting it a little bit and it's like, Oh wait, yeah, you can. Yeah. yeah you can, you can have some really good action. Yes, you can. In, and in that actually, it's a lot easier to get permission on pieces of property or like fence lines and stuff too. Yeah. Because a lot of the bigger woods is already taken or leased around yeah. here. So if you knock on enough doors, you'll, you'll get on something decent. Yeah. So do you do anything special to approach these? Like as I look at some of these, I'm thinking, man, that every deer in that area is going to see me walk into this fence line. Like there's no way I can get in feeling undetected. Is there anything special that you do or well, you just kind of go for it? For morning hunts, I go in at where I can see. I never go in earlier than, than dark because if you're hunting small parcels, if you spook deer, your chances just went down like probably 80%. Sure. Like I've never sure. had a really good hunt where I've spooked a bunch of deer in the morning and then set up and they've always ended badly. <laughs> okay. Okay. So when I walk in, it's, so we're actually, talking gray light kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, where you can see across the field. And like this past year, I saw one of my best morning hunts. I was walking in that twilight and there was four does and two bucks and they were chasing out there. And now if I would have walked in that dark, there was or 10 minutes before that, it would have been a really good chance. I would have spooked them and it, my hunt would have been terrible, but I watched them run down halfway down the wood line, cut in. And when they did that, I got up in the stand and sure enough, a bigger buck hooked up with them. And they chased those four does all the way back up to me. And it was a beautiful eight pointer where I thought about taking them. And I, when I turned my camera, I grabbed the lens, like uh, panicking because okay. they were chasing so hard. And when I turned it and I went to turn it down, I snapped the camera lens. And when it snapped, it fell uh, out of my hands and the doe looked up and he chased her off the opposite way. So, it, you know, that was my fault. Oh, heartbreaking. But, yeah. And for my camera. <laughs> sure. You know? yeah. That, that's that's kind of what I, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, but like if I would have taken the chance, because especially if you have a lot of deer in a smaller acreage, there's a really good chance you're going to bump something. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't like to take that chance. Yeah, for sure. And then a lot of times I'll go in in the mornings, hunt, and then come out in the evening field edges because the deer around here in Rock County, they love alfalfa fields, crop fields coming out in the evening. I've had great success. And the buck I shot this year, he was coming out to a pick cornfield. So, yeah. So talk a little bit of that, about that, if you will, sort of your, your style of hunting and how it changes throughout the year. You know, over the, over the last couple of years, there's been the, the big um, buck bedding craze. There's been the, basically, if you're not, uh, 
getting wet on the way to your stand. If you're not wading through swamps to get there, then what are you even doing with your life? Kind of, kind of thought when it comes to hunting, you know? Um, but I think in our neck of the woods, I know it's not relatable to a lot of guys to have big crop fields to hunt, but in our neck of the woods, that is like, it it is possible. So tell me a little bit about how you approach these crop fields and stuff. And does that change throughout the season and kind of how you, how you approach the properties that you have? Yeah. Every year it changes because to be honest, food plots are kind of useless around here. I mean, unless like this year, there's a bunch of corn up where I'm at. So I put in a clover field, just something different to give them, you know, a bunch of does. To, and they've, I've already got pictures of a bunch in my food plot. So I know it's established. They're going to come in there. And then end of October, November, those bucks are going to come through there and check. But like early in the year, I like to hunt fence lines. And I, the key for small acreage is keeping the pressure off the deer because hmm. if you start getting in there early in September and you bump deer, you're putting yourself way behind for that pre-rut rut stage. I mean, you want those does to be coming out in the same area. You want the bucks coming out, hitting the same scrape. And usually the bucks will hit the scrapes at night, but closer you get to that first week of November, they start showing up a little earlier. And to me, the best week of evening hunting is October 24th to the 28th. 80, 80% of these bucks up here I've shot during those evening hunts. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Right. And he, he says these bucks in here, I'm looking at a massive wall full of bucks. Now are, are pretty much all of these yours? They are all mine. They are all yours. Yeah. Okay. So there are a lot of really huge deer in, in his shop uh, that he's taken. I'll try to get a picture uh, with your permission and, yeah. and post that yeah, up no so that problem. people can see. Uh, not only, I'm guessing you did all this taxidermy work, all of them, except for one that, that was the first buck I shot. Okay. That one up there. Yeah. Okay. So you weren't quite doing taxidermy just yet or not yet. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you try to keep the pressure off early in the year. Yeah. Does that mean you're not getting out really much in September, early October? I am, but it's mostly like fence lines or spots that I only really give myself a 20% chance to okay. shoot one. I'm overlooking ed- or edges of woods, just seeing what's coming out where. So I have an idea because those will stick to a pattern. As long as you stay off of them, there's a pretty good chance they're going to come on the same trails and, and then you'll find scrapes there. My dad taught me that when I was young, we used to hunt up in sock and he would say we would hunt actually in the corn oh, in a, there'll be a alfalfa field and then the woods and he said, watch these does come out. And he would wait till the end of October, go to the edge of the woods, check. It'd be a scrape. And then we'd slam a stand up. And sure enough, at that time, we weren't picky. Sure. So sure. we'd shoot first thing that comes through. Yeah. Because his thing was he had to get a deer or a buck before pheasant hunting. Because oh, he loves yeah. pheasant hunting. So, <laughs> Can't get in the way of pheasant hunting. Yeah. So when I was young, I didn't have no idea what the rut really was about. Oh, wow. Because we would be done that second week of october okay and then my older brother actually jake got me into like in the rut like he started sitting all days and then he he would say man you should see all these i was seeing bucks at 11 one o'clock you know and i was like whatever you know and uh then sure enough i went and sat a couple of times and yeah it's i've been hooked ever since (laughs) wow wow so are you are you hunting mornings early in the season or you just that it's strictly a rut just that's pure i don't like to start hunting mornings till november 1st okay yeah okay and i mean if we get a nice morning like october 28th in there i'll go but 
strictly November 1st is when I like to start and then I'll try to sit all day. Okay. And you're taking, so there's the, the rutcation. A lot of guys like to talk about, you're trying to concentrate, do the same thing. Yeah. Get a lot of hunting in that last or that first two weeks of October or November. Yeah. Yeah. Especially I take the evenings off every evening for that last week of October. Okay. And then November 1st, I start hitting it hard for two weeks straight. Nice. So you mentioned earlier you had, uh, you'd ask some neighbors to maybe hold off on that deer, which, you know, 160 inch deer would be hard to hold off on, but you're right. It could have turned into something, but not to take away from the animal. Yeah. I mean, just really impressive rack. Um, but could have been something, you know, really, really special. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned having a couple of 130s running around that you'd ask them to hold off on. So what are you, what's your criteria for a solid buck, uh, here in Southern Wisconsin? Well, for where my house is, the land that I hunt around there, 150 is what I'm trying to, to establish here to shoot. Now, the other parcels that I have, if, if it comes to be second, third week of October, and I don't have a buck in the one fifties in this area, then I'm hunting the other areas and I'm going to shoot a one thirty, um, without a doubt. Okay. So, I mean, I would love to shoot a 200 class, but I'm also realistic. I don't have the land like a lot of the shows that you see, you know, they have different, like 10 different leases and all that. Well, it's not, you can't relate to them because the land is just different. You can't control what's being shot. You got pressure everywhere. Sure. You know, there's not one place around where I hunt that doesn't get hunted. I don't, you know, I don't butt up to a park or anything like that. It's just, (laughs) you know, you just hope that you get a good one every year to, to make it. And I believe like this past year, there was a double drop that made it. It's just, for some reason, these deer don't like stick around. Like Mm. from year to year, they'll, they must travel to a different area and then make that their core. And I'm just hoping that deer makes it back this way because he should be a, a nice one. Wow. And you said that was a two-year-old. Yeah. Right? Two and a half year old. saying earlier. Yeah. Man. And everybody laid off that deer. So we were all in agreement and we know that he made it. It's just, uh, hopefully, you know, not everybody's tight, tight lipped and will actually say that they're, you know, they have them on camera and not that, you know, he disappeared or, you know, make it harder for everybody. <laughs> yeah. So do you have pretty good cooperation when it comes to that kind of stuff? So they, they held off on the two year old. All right. So they, yeah, is it but it, it seems good like when it comes to younger deer. Yeah. It seems like if they make it to 130 inch, they're going to shoot it. Okay. Which I mean, I can't blame them at sure. all. I would too. I mean, I started out 130 was a heck of a deer. Yeah. That's a stud. Yeah. I mean, for anybody, yep. but then as the more PYs I've shot over the years, I'm trying to, make the next jump to 150 and above, but it is extremely hard when you don't have the the control. Sure. You know, so I'm hoping someday maybe I can find a lease or something that might produce a a deer like that. And I'm always looking, but as of now, it's, it's pretty tough. Yeah. It, it seems like I've noticed as I've, I, I consume a lot of content, whether it be video content, whether it be, um, you know, podcasts, that sort of thing there seem to be two consistent things with guys that shoot consistently really, really big deer, like not, not one thirties. We're talking one fifties and above, um, two things. One, they have exclusive access to, to properties and two, they either have one really, really large chunk of ground that, that is exclusively theirs, or they've got a bunch of different smaller chunks of ground 
where they can sort of keep an eye on, you know, yeah. 35 different properties. And then, well, which, which one turned up a, a 160 this year, yeah. you know, and they can kind yeah. of hop over to that property. Whereas if you've got, you know, if you're a normal guy and you got five to 10, yeah. may, maybe in this area, five to 10 farmers who will let you onto their property, uh, you don't have exclu- exclusive yeah. access, you know, um, <clears throat> it's much, much harder. Yeah. Much, much harder, especially with the deer moving like they do. So wh- what would you say is normal for um, this part of Wisconsin as far as what a, a buck would consider his like his core or what you would consider a buck's core area? Well, in Dane County, it seems like their core area is they'll stick around all season. Like okay. if I get them in August, like you see on the TV shows, they got them in velvet and, you know, you can get pictures of them all the way through October and you can stay on that deer. Yep. Around here, these deer don't move in, these bigger bucks don't move into my area until October 3rd, which I don't know why. I know my in-laws like to ride horses and four-wheelers, and I don't know if all that kind of disturbs them, and they are pushed out, and then they'll come in because there is so many does in this area. Okay. But, uh, but the deer around here, they just seem to roam a heck of a lot more. Like, I get more uh, trespass bucks in the rut here than Dane County. I'll, I mean, I can show you if I get a picture in August, I'm going to see that deer in October and I'm not going to see it like a new buck. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's, okay. it's, it's so different. And the rut there seems like it starts almost like a week earlier. Mm-hmm. I've never understood that either, but, uh, but things start rolling down there and then things kick in about a week later here in Rock County. Yeah, I I was asking a guy actually who owns um about a hundred acres near where I hunt. I hunt primarily in Dane County. Um and I was asking him, you know, when do I need to be in a tree? Because coming from Alabama and Louisiana, like our prime hunting would be the very end of January, the first ten days of February is when you'd see the bucks up on their feet. And uh he he told me, you know, he hunts up in Dane County. And uh, he told me that last week of October is when he really sees the bucks up on their yeah. feet. And if, if you got a big buck hitting your cameras consistently, that last week of October, I can almost guarantee you're going to see him out on a field edge, checking for does and bumping them. It's like they have to make their appearance for the rest of the, the bucks, <laughs> and then they start. You know, they want that first doe to come in the or they're waiting for that first doe to come into heat. So like I can, all these bucks, I could have guaranteed I, the ones that I've shot on the wall that they were going to make an appearance on the field edges. And they, they did. So, wow. Wow. And then guys, there's, there's a lot of deer on his wall. Like I got to get a picture before I leave, but it, it's, it's really impressive. Uh, so you, t- you've talked about sort of early season, your tactic. Uh, you'd like to hunt a lot of these fence lines, uh, rut comes, you kind of get into it and you're hunting all day and that kind of stuff. Do you make it to the late season at all? I haven't hunted. No. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good problem to have. That, that's a yeah. great problem to have. I luckily haven't gone past, I think November 10th. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I, if I go past November 10th, I'm going to be scrambling. Yeah. I, I hunted a uh, late season last year, hunted in January and it was four degrees Yeah, and I'm from Alabama. So that was very new. Uh, I would not recommend yeah. it if you don't have to do it. I mean, I've shot a doe late season. I think it was like the January 2nd or something I hunted one year. And it was like negative two Jeez. just to try to fill a doe tag on film. And I, I was able to do it. But man, to, to do that every year, that would be tough. 
going after a, like a really nice buck. Yeah, the the amount of noise everything makes at that time oh, yeah. of year, and like, your tree stand, yeah. your all your gear is yeah. just. I uh, I actually missed a doe when I went out uh, in late season last year, and just drawing my bow back, yeah, it sounded like it was going to snap in half when <laughs> it was that cold. I mean, it was you know it was was freezing, but um, anyway, so let's let's talk a little bit about. I mean, your your wall here is impressive. Uh, you've got some other deer here that you're currently working on. So let's talk a bit about your taxidermy. Um, that's how I met you. Um, yep. like I said earlier, um, I came in with a turkey and I, I knew I recognized you from somewhere. Uh, and so I, but I walk into your shop, you've got deer all over the place. You were working on some turkeys, some other turkeys at the time. I think it was turkey season. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Tell me about how you got into taxidermy and, and why. So my dad's best friend, uh, his name is Mike Jensen. He's a taxidermy taxidermist out of McFarland. And every time I went over there when I was younger, I was just so intrigued, you know, all the animals on the wall. And, and then when I was in high school, I took a wildlife class wild mm. wildlife. And, uh, that year they, we mounted a perch. Nice. Yeah. So it, it was so cool. And then for like my final exam, I mounted two largemouth bass. And ever since then I went over to my dad's buddy, Mike, and watched him do deer heads and I just got hooked on it and it saves a lot of money. I mean, <laughs> you know, that, that, that was the main reason why I got into it was because of the shoulder mounts. They're like 500 bucks at the time. Sure. And to save money, I wanted to, to learn myself and figured if I was lucky enough to harvest some nice bucks, I could just mount them a heck of a lot cheaper. Cause I always wanted quite a few, you know, shoulder mounts cause I always thought it was cool. But, uh, and then as time went on, I started watching like, taxidermy U and just taxidermy.net just picking up tips here and there and just started doing every type of uh like turkeys and stuff and just i was doing it just for family and friends and then their friends would you know would come and then it just grew into a business and so like six years ago i made it like officially like a business and ever since i i've grown every single year and it's on one hand, it's great. On the other hand, when you're trying to go gun hunting or something and you can't because you got 15 deer laying in your garage need to be caped, it's, <laughs> not, you know, it's not that fun. So, sure. you sure. know, but, uh, but I, I mean, I love hunting so much that it's just another way like in January, February, March to, you know, keep, I don't know, in the outdoors industry so yeah you know know, i think a lot of guys uh think that as well so when we they start uh, i think i think the dream for a lot of folks is to be involved in the outdoor industry somehow you know and i think that taxidermy uh is a way that a lot of folks think i can i can jump into this but i don't think that it's all some folks think it's cracked up to be like you said right there I, i think they think well the ticket would be man if i can just get into taxidermy then i can i can hunt i can be my own boss but like you said yeah, when you got a bunch of deer laying in your garage and then you got flat, you know, if you got like a warm November like we had that first week of November, I had like during the bow season, there was like seven different bucks laying in the garage. And when it gets to be 70, 75, you can't just let them, you know, stay in the cold and do them whenever you want. You got to get things done right away. And then you got, you know, flies all over the place and you got to get rid of the carcasses. And then you got the guys that bring in deer and they're, you know, they cut the capes all the way down the back and it, you know, no taxidermist wants to see that. Sure. You know, that's why I always say, if you shoot a deer, just bring it to me. I'll cape it for free. Cause you know, 
just that extra hour, hour and a half uh, sewing up the back just makes it that much more of a pain yeah. for me. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I came here to your shop with a, with a buddy of mine and uh, I think they had, he had had a, um, he had had a meat processor cape his deer out for yes. him and they did it. You said it was kind of the old way of doing yep. it, right? So they, they cut it right up the back of the, yes. the back of the neck. And, um, that one of the things that stuck with me, you told, uh, him and you told, you told me, cause this was my first time, first year hunting in Wisconsin. You were like, Hey, if you get a deer, call me, I'll come and yep. cape that thing out for you so that you don't have to worry about how to get it right. And I thought, so, okay, this is, this is a guy I need to have on the podcast because, that's just a stand up thing to do. You know, <laughs> like that's just a nice, that's just a nice thing to do for somebody. So, um, you know, I want to ask two questions. Number one, with the weather being like it was last year, how long do you have before the, uh, before, uh, you know, warm weather or a deer that's been sitting out, how long do you have before that Cape begins to be affected by that? So if it's like 70, 60, 70 degree weather, you do not want that Cape out longer than like 24 hours okay without ice or something in the cavity okay so the best thing to do is to get it to a taxidermist if it's that warm if it's cold out if it's like 30 20 degrees out then yeah you got time to you know hang in the garage drink some beer talk to your friends you know <laughs> show <laughs> all it the off. things we want to do yeah exactly you know because i think a lot of guys they shoot one during that warm weather and you want to hang it or it's an insulated shop and they got the heat going and they want mm. their beer and you know, which I can't blame them, but for a taxidermist, they want that deer right away, to, you know, to clean it off and stick it in the freezer. And so you don't have to worry about it because like the deer behind me there, he was in an insulated shop and he had severe hair slippage and I was able to save the cape, but it just made it that much harder to, for me to mount it. Yeah. Is that, is that sort of the first thing that starts to happen? You start to lose some hair. Yeah. Bacteria will build up and then you'll start losing hair like a son of a gun. And it's just, can you repair that? I mean, you can cut out a lot of times you can cut out sections and sew it back up. But then again, you're just, that's a lot more time. And you know, and then you're a lot of times that different place will start slipping. And then you're, you got to make the deer kind of smaller because you're sewing up, you know, two, three inches and it's just, mm. it's not good. Yeah. You know, and I'm I'm sure guys don't want to hear that phone call of hey you let this thing sit for too long and now I'm gonna have to spend an extra four hours of my time which yeah. do you do you call them and say hey I need to maybe charge you if, a little extra if it's really bad if it's really bad I'll say you're gonna need a new cape okay because otherwise I mean ten years down the line the, the hair might be all falling on the bottom of the floor Jeez. you know and you don't dare brush them out or anything because you're just gonna keep losing hair wow. So it's just very, very important to get that deer into a taxidermist right away so he can take care of it. Okay. So if, if somebody lives in this area, should they give you a call? Yeah, they get definitely. get a deer on the ground, give you a call and say, hey. Give me a call, bring it over. I've even gone over to other guys' garages and caped them out right there. A lot of guys want to see how it's done. You know, there's certain guys that have brought deer year after year to me that I know they know what they're doing and they'll cape it themselves and bring it here and, you know, I'm fine with that. But there's a lot of guys that look on YouTube or something, and like I had one guy, and he split it all the way down the back, and I was like, you know, that's not the way they we do things anymore, <laughs> you know. But and the the worst ones though are the meat processors, because a lot of times they'll split them down the back, and if they don't do that, they'll stick them in their coolers, but they won't call the guy for like a week, 
And even in a cooler at like 40, 50 degree weather, you're still, it's still going to build up bacteria mm. over time. So any cape I get from a meat processor, I stick it in a solution that's supposed to kill bacteria right away. And, you know, hopefully I can save it and help it. Try to stop some of that hair slippage. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what's the number one mistake would you say that you see? Um, you know, you put a lot of work into finding a good deer. You finally get the deer on the ground. You want to preserve that memory. The last thing you want to do is to botch what comes next as the average Joe, you know, be- yeah. between uh, loosing the arrow or, or firing the gun and getting that thing to the taxidermist. What's the biggest mistake you see guys making when it comes to caring for their, for their deer for, as far as producing a, a high quality mount? I think the biggest mistake is waiting too long to, to- bring the deer in okay like some guys they think that they can hang them for a week and it's just you can't do that you know you'll get hair slippage and it's just it's just a bad deal all the way around it's it will start stinking and Mm -hmm. you know you just it's just a hard thing to stop but also too when guys try to keep it themselves they'll cut it too short at the brisket okay so like when the armpits there a lot of times guys will go almost above that well, then you can't stretch that cape anymore. And you oh, can't. Oh, so like bottom of the neck? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or you get the guys that will, instead of reaching up when they're gutting it to cut the jugular, mm-hmm. they'll go right across the neck. They'll just stick their knife right in the throat and cut it straight across. Well, then you got to sew it, but also you lose all that hair in there. And it's just, you know, a problem that didn't need to happen. Yeah, that's a pretty prominent spot on a deer to be yeah. messing up too. I mean, that's yeah. I imagine that's pretty hard to hide at that point. It is. I mean, you can do a pretty decent job, but uh, I mean, some guys might do it twice because they didn't do it right the first time. <laughs> Instead of going in the same spot, they just do it again. And yeah, I, I've I've seen a lot of that too. But but I would say those three things are the biggest uh, issues. But if you bring it to me, or I can go to your place and cape it. And a lot of times, I'll I'll skin the whole deer for you, quarter it, cape it, and then you can take the deer and bone it or give it to a meat processor. And I just try I try to make it as easy as possible on the customer, and I also want it done right. Sure, you know, yeah. So what well, makes your life easier down the road yes, too? Yes, and, exactly. And then I mean, you're if you don't have much to work with, your name goes on amount that yeah maybe you're not super happy with the results maybe it's as good as anybody could have possibly gotten that particular cape yeah right like you could be the best taxidermist in the world but if at the end of the day it just wasn't a good yeah because there are some just ugly deer i'll be honest (laughs) (laughs) you know some that have gotten hit by cars they got road rash and there's not a whole lot you can do you just make it the best you can and and i think a lot of the customers i try to point things out when they bring the deer to me yep and just say, hey, you know, this deer's got this, you know, cut and just different things like that. And everybody's pretty, you know, nice about it. Yeah, kind of manage those expectations a little bit. Yeah. Like it's not going to look Yeah, like the magazine, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, your deer look fantastic. That guy over there looks like he got beat up a little bit. Yeah, that, a, was, that was a rough cape. Like I said, okay, that okay. was the one that was in, in a heated shop when I oh, came over okay. there, and it was like 70 degrees when I went to cape it. And, gotcha. it was, and that deer, actually, his horns fell off. Did they really? He shot it on the last day of the gun season, 
And when he went to take a picture of it with his phone, he lifted the rack up and that horn came off. And then when he dragged it to the truck, he dragged it all the way with the one horn, put it up on the truck. And when he put it on the truck, the other horn came off. Jeez. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Is that typical for them to shed that early here? Or is that? That's usually, it's, that's rare. Okay. But a lot of guys this past year, I mean, just looking on Facebook, there was a lot of antlers being lost during the gun hunting. So I don't know Hmm. if it was like a hard rut or in those areas or what, but yeah, I've never... I've never come across anything like that before. Wow, that's wild. So speaking of the the business or this, I guess what started out as kind of a hobby almost and yes. has turned into a business. What's your favorite thing to mount? Whitetails. White tails. Okay. Without okay. a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Got yeah. It. Got I it. just something about them. I just I don't know. I love recreating. Yeah. You know, especially the way I like deer because I mean. You can look at a lot of, like, I go to the Wisconsin Dells, and they have those, that live deer pen mm-hmm. that you can go pay some money and go look at them. And yeah. I like, I take a lot of pictures, so I have, you know, references to go off of. And some of them are just ugly, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. Every deer is different. Sure. And when I look at those references and try to put them in with mine, I try to make my deer how I want them to look. Yep. You know, so I like a little more eye squint than like the big you know eyes and i don't like ears perked like i see uh with the big eyes you know you're pegged yeah i'm gonna get the heck out of here yeah you know i kind of like one ear back kind of relax like kind of knows what's going on with one ear up or forward and one ear back and just you know just play around with that just different looks because if you ever look at a deer in the wild he's never the only time he's got both ears forward is if something's up yeah. Otherwise, he's con- or, or she is constantly trying to detect, you know, or hear everything from every which direction. So I always try to, you know, with the ears, play with them and see yeah, what's best. I've always wondered why guys want their deer to look afraid. Yeah. You know, like you walk into a guy's house and you look at his mounts and it's just like, all these deer look, <laughs> look like you're bust, like yeah. they busted you. Yeah. <laughs> all these deer, you look like they've smelled you. Um, I would like for it, you know, kind of what, what was it doing when it came in? Like yes. what, what, what captures that memory yep. the best for me? So, uh, okay. So you've got a, a ton of fish in here. You've got a bunch of turkeys in here as well. Uh, you had a pretty cool thing happen last year though, that provided a pretty unique mount. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So last, uh, February I get a phone call from uh, a man named Nate Olson and I was actually in the shop at the time working. And the day before, on Facebook, some guy found these two huge bucks locked up while he was out shed hunting. And I told now, my wife... Now, I want to stop you right there. You say, you say huge. You're, I call your... We were 160 over there huge. What are we talking about when we think like, huge? Here? Like around 250. Okay. So yeah. big, big. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. Like nothing I've ever seen. Giants. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And when I saw the picture, you could see it was a big deer, but I couldn't tell like how big it was because it just looked like a mess of horns. So I asked my wife if she knew the guy and she's like, yeah, he was like a year ahead or something. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if he gave me a call and, you know, I got to see him. So I was in here the next day working on a, a cape and I don't get any phone reception. So I go outside to go eat lunch and I look at my phone and a vo- voicemail popped up. And I listened to, and it's him. He's like, hey, I was wondering if I could bring the deer over and get it scored. 
And, you know, I'm calling the guy like 10 times <laughs> panicking. <'cause>, you know, <laughs> Don't take it anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so he came over, I think it was like the next day, and he wanted me to measure it. And so I measured it, and it was like around 253 is what I got. And I, I've never seen anything like it. But it was very hard to measure because both bucks were locked up. So then I told him, why don't we get a, a Pope and Young score to come in that, that's official? and see what the deer is going to score so you have an, a better idea. Because I said, I, I've never sc- scored a deer like that before. Typicals is what I usually score, and I'm mm-hmm. pretty, pretty good at it, but nothing like that thing. So this guy named Dan Peterson that is a measurer for Pope and Young, he came to the shop, and he measured it, and he got like, I think it was around 253 and some change. And the record for the state of Wisconsin is 253. So we were like, wow, this thing's, you know, it could break the record. But then he was saying, well, it needs 40, 45 days to dry. Is it 45 or 60? It might be, I'd have to look that up. I'm not sure, but just a, but a drying period for, yeah. the, for the antlers. But even when the buck was found, they were saying that it was out in the cold. So the day that you found it, six, I think it's 60 days. 60 days from that is when it can officially be scored. But... uh so the guy was all happy, you know, how big it was. But he's like, I got some bad news. To get it officially scored, you got to get the bucks apart. So the smaller buck, which everybody online was seeing as like 160, 170. And when I scored him, he was like 140. Okay. So there was a big difference on that buck, but not on the other one. So when we took the buck off the, the bigger buck, I split it right down the middle of the skull with a sawzaw. And there was probably like 15, 20 people here. So it was kind of nerve wracking because of buck that big. I didn't want to like snap a tine or something. <laughs> so, sure. you know, the sawzall jumps, and there goes one of the tines. Oh. So I split it right down the middle and the buck came apart beautifully and we got it off. And it was just seeing it without the other one on there was like, this thing is gigantic. Wow. Because you couldn't tell just how big it was with that other rack on it. Yeah, just an antler ball yeah, at that point. Yep, exactly. It was just a mess. So then, you know, he was like, he was just so happy. So then the thing was, he was supposed to get it scored at the Deer and Turkey Expo because that would have been right at the 60-day. Well, then COVID hit. Uh. Yeah, so he couldn't get it done then. And he wanted it done at, like, the Deer and Turkey Expo. So I mounted it. Uh, I think I got it done in like, well, I, I had it done before the deer and Turkey expo, which is like first week of April, but then it was kind of disappointed. I worked my tail off, you know, and then it wasn't even going to happen. So he thought, well, maybe the next year. So the other buck, he wanted it mounted too on a shoulder mount. And they're both like an aggressive, um, just about like they're going to fight. And I got mm. pictures of it and it looks really sweet that he took a picture of it on, in his house and it, it looks, it looks awesome. That's I will cool. say. Yeah. And, uh, so then this past year he was going to get it scored at the Deer and Turkey Expo. Well, the year before they were going to give him a hotel room and tickets and a booth. Well, for this deer, for this deer. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And then they were going to give me a booth for doing it, which was, you know, I couldn't say no. Yeah. It's a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. So then this year I, I contacted the guy and I go, Hey, do you want, you know, you want Nate at the deer and Turkey expo? And cause I said, he wants to get the deer scored. Well, he told me, yes. 
But then he's like, can I have Nate's phone number? So he talked to him, and I don't know what happened, but Nate says, no, they don't want to give me a hotel. Because it was at the, not the Great Wolf, it was at uh, the Kalahari. Yeah. And the Dells yep. this past year. So they said that they weren't going to give him a hotel or anything or a booth. And I was like, they were giving him a free ticket. And he was just so disappointed from one year to the next, you know, and he just said, heck with it. I'm not going to get it scored then there. And so, you know, so I, there's this potential state record. Exactly. Yeah. Deer floating around out there that I've seen in person. He, it's giant. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's, it never got scored. No, not I yet. I did not know that. Yeah. So we, we have no idea if that is the biggest buck in the state or not. And it's going to be close. Gosh. So hopefully, I don't know. I talked to him uh, when I gave him his smaller buck and he was, he thought about maybe having something at like Newt's Bar and Grill. That's like, I think his mom owns or something or relation owns it. And so we thought maybe having some scores come in there and score it there and just kind of, you know, see what it, what it scores out. Cause that, I want to know. Yeah, for <laughs> you know? sure. You know, it's such an impressive deer. I just hate to see the deer not get its due. Yeah. So absolutely. And what county was that? That was Rock County. Rock County. Yeah. So state record, Rock County. Yeah, isn't that, that's crazy. That's I would have awesome. never thought deer were that big around here, but they're they're that big around here. <laughs> that's wild. Well, <clears throat> so uh, taxidermy is how I first came to know you. I brought in. My very first turkey, I grew up in the Deep South, uh, never really turkey hunted very much. Then I got up here, and um, my buddy told me, hey, if you want it done right, take it to this guy, and he had some deer. So we came in, and I knew I recognized you, and I recognized you from Midwest Whitetail. I'd seen you, uh, seen your hunts online before. So when you came and you actually dropped the turkey off at my house, uh, I was like, I know where I recognize yeah, you from. It's yeah. Midwest Whitetail. Uh, but there were like little clues I like, and when I was in your shop, I was like, okay, there's a camera over <laughs> there. There's some cool looking gear over here that doesn't look like it's been used very much. Where is this guy from? So anyway, finally put that together. Tell me a little bit about how uh, you got into filming your hunts in the first place and then how you got tied in with Midwest Whitetail and you're still filming for them. Yes. Right. So yep. uh, how did, how did all of this begin? It actually began early 2000s um i was watching a show called campbell outdoor challenge it was on i think it was on the outdoor channel or something it was on satellite i was watching it and i called my brother and it was like it was just like regular dudes filming it was a competition and you got so many points if you filmed the dough getting harvested and how the footage was and then you got uh, a score of bucks you know if you harvested a buck what score you got, how good the footage was, how, you know, was it a close up and all that. So there was different ki- criterias of scoring. And I called my older brother and I was like, man, we could, you know, we should try this. And uh, he's like, yeah. So it, he tuned in and saw the show and I said, well, I'll, I'll go out and buy a camera. So I bought like the Canon XL one. I think it was, it was a big gigantic thing. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was practicing like having a dog go out and I would follow it and, you know, just stuff like that. And, uh, so my older brother was working on sponsors hmm. and, uh, so we had like vortex, like wow, really? I think okay. the very first year we had vortex optics. No kidding. Yeah. They paid like our way in there. And, uh, what else? We had a bunch of other sponsors like Easton arrows and I don't know. I can't remember them all so long ago, 
but uh, the first year I was so nervous. So you, you travel down to Southern Illinois, Carmine, Illinois, and it was like at, at an Outfitters. So I think it's like uh, Campbell uh, Whitetails is what it is, the Outfitters. And they, it was, the show was called Campbell Outdoors. Okay. So we traveled down there. It was like a seven-hour trip from Stoughton at the time where I was living. And I was so nervous, like the interviews and everything. And I was like in my early 20s. I think I had braces on. <laughs> you know, and you're getting interviewed and it's like everything's professional. And, and I was like, man, this, I might have bitten off a little more I could chew, you know. And we, we didn't do so well. I'll be quite honest. We had just problems. It's a lot harder than it looks trying to get the hunter and the guy videoing on the same when you're going to shoot and just being on the same page. So it took us about a year to figure things out. And then the next year we placed third, I think out of like 15 teams. So we were happy and obviously your skill had improved a bit. Yeah. Yeah. We practiced a lot, even during the, you know, our bow season, he was living down here at the time and we would get together and film and we improved a lot. So then the next year we, we won it and we were your third year. Yeah. Yeah. It was on at that time it was on versus the channel. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we couldn't believe we won it. <laughs> but we got a bunch of free gear and money, and I mean, it was it was awesome. So, and then we we're kind of like, do we just keep going back, you know, or like, what are we going to do from here? So we wanted to try to do like our own kind of show. So we kind of dipped into like Merce Outdoors, it was called, and we did we uh, videoed turkey hunts, a little bit of fishing and deer hunts. But the editing, I mean, as you know, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, for sure. And my brother had kids. I was young. I was working. And I didn't, I'm not computer savvy at all. So we kind of just, we went back to the Campbell show, like, I think the next two years. And we did so-so. And then they changed the, the show to something else, the final season. And we didn't like how it, how it was. It was more based on like B footage shots instead of like hunting. Mm. So it was just kind of, I don't know, it was weird. So then I, my older brother ended up moving to Minnesota. So I said, my little brother was old enough now to start filming. So you had to apply for Midwest Whitetails. I watched their shows for, you know, I don't know how many years I was watching them, but I always loved their show because you could learn so much from it. Mm-hmm. And so I, we videoed, I videoed a hunt, a kill, and I shot a buck and a doe that year. And then I did like a little, I don't know, get to know me type of deal on video and sent it in and they liked it. And they, they said, yeah, we want to, want you to join the, the pro staff. Wow. What year was that? I'm going to say it was five years ago. Okay. So yeah. I've been 2016 ish. Yeah. 2015, 2016. Okay. Yeah, we just moved to Evansville, and I just remembered, you know, filming in the basement there. And ever, I mean, every year I've been lucky enough to harvest a really nice buck on camera. So I've been, they've been happy. I've been happy. I'm trying to do better on like bee footage and stuff like that because they want more of that. But when you're hunting and you're going day after day after day, you start taking shortcuts and. You know, you, you're just thinking about you want that kill on camera, but there's more to the story than just the kill. And, sure. you know, I'm hoping this year without having so many house projects and things going, this is the first year and losing hunting property. This is the first time in five years I haven't lost a property 
that I've hunted like 20 for 20 plus years. Wow. Yeah. So this year will be nice. I don't have to take any stands down or anything like that or worry, you know, where I'm going to hunt. So, yeah. So you got maybe a little bit more time. Yeah. I'd say those stories with individual deer and with individual properties is sort of the heart of Midwest whitetail. Like it, that's what they do better than anyone else. I yes. Mean, I, yeah. I really like, um, I really, I, I like the folks at bowhunting.com. I like the hunting public. I like Midwest whitetail. They all kind of have their thing. Yeah. And, and that's what's gripped me about Midwest whitetail is they're like, okay, I can follow this hunter chasing these two or three or maybe one yeah. deer for the entire season and yeah. sort of catching up with that person and how that's been going. So, yeah. Um, and I love the different regions you can watch because yeah. like the Midwest is a lot different than out East or the Southern states. You know, and I love watching how, what they do to try to, you know, score on a big buck. And yep. it's, you know, you can learn a lot because if I ever get a tag in Georgia or something or out East, I might have a clue of what to do, yeah. you know, for those type of deer. Yeah, for sure. Because you know, every place is different where you hunt. Yep. So. Yeah. And they were doing that. Are they still going to do the semi-live yeah. stuff this year or yeah. are they going to? Okay. okay. Yeah. I believe so. I know they had moved to kind of doing like the, the blog post where they had a couple of or vlogs, I guess, where there were a handful of guys who had a vlog up every, every yeah. day or well, every I think other day. For the regions, I believe last year our show came out for the Great Lakes was Tuesday or Wednesday. I can't remember okay. exactly, but every Tuesday or Wednesday a new show would come up. Okay. Because it, it's a lot harder because like in Wisconsin alone, I think there was eight or ten of us hunting. And they were saying, you know, that's a lot of footage to try to put together in a short period of time. But, but yeah, I mean, Jared and Josh, Jared Mills and Josh Sparks do an absolute fantastic job with, you know, how they go about running that show. It's, it's exciting to be a part of it. Now that Bill left, but uh, I, I can tell it's in good hands. So, yeah. yeah. I, I uh, you know, for me, um, I've, I've been watching Midwest Whitetail for a long time and, uh, really liked keeping up with Bill in particular and his farm and all of that. Yeah. So this past year with all the transition going on, it was kind of like, I don't know. I felt like my own life was disrupted a bit. You know, it's like, <laughs> what's, what's going to happen with Midwest, with Midwest Whitetail? What's going to happen with Bill and his farm? He sold that place. You know, how is that going to happen? But um, I've really liked the new flavor um, that has come along with, with this transition. I think Bill did a fantastic job. But then I see Jared and see sort of a, a new emphasis, I guess, or, or maybe a, a leaning in further into that emphasis on uh, quality footage yeah, uh, and, and making it a, making it about the, the watching experience has been really nice. And you learn a lot. I watched Jared's hunt. <clears throat> I think it was yesterday. I watched it where he killed the 183 inch deer in a ghillie suit on the ground. Yeah. It's like, oh man, that, yeah, that was that some incredible footage. What's that? That was incredible footage. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm not sure what it was. I think it might've been his arrow, but as that deer is coming in, you can just hear, I think that's his arrow rattling on the, on the rest. It's like, Oh man, that's gotta be pretty intense. Yeah. In August, a show comes out called chasing November. That's actually made by Midwest whitetail. Yep. So in August that will be coming out and they kind of just run the entire long seat or the entire season. You get to see how everything plays out from all the regions and it's pretty cool to watch just how everything starts gearing up for November and how everybody, you know, goes about how they're going to try to take the deer that they want. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so. there's so one thing I noticed too. Uh, if you keep up with Midwest Whitetail really regularly, there's still more to be seen when when chasing November comes around. Like, yes, even if it's a hunt that you've seen already, there's more background story. There's more footage that goes along with it, and the way it's woven together with other stories it really makes it worth watching again. Even yeah, if you've seen and yep. tried to keep up with most of the hunts there. Um, so this past turkey season, I, uh, I got bit by the bug, uh, bought a couple of cameras and, and took them out. I, uh, I kept seeing things that I, that I thought nobody's going to believe me. Like if I go back and tell everybody that I saw this or that deer or these, you know, there was one morning I, uh, had encounters with three mature bucks, like three really nice bucks yeah, all within about two and a half hours of each other. Oh yeah. And I thought I was going to fall out of the tree and I was like, I'm going to go tell people this and no one's going to believe what I have to say, you know? <laughs> so I bought some cameras and uh, started filming and it's become pretty addictive, Yeah, but the amount of work that goes into it, I think a lot of people maybe don't quite realize. So uh, what would you say? Uh, there, there are lots of guys out there now who are starting to film their hunts. I'm doing it more from a hobby perspective of, I enjoy this, especially with my young kids. I can take it home and say, Hey, here's where daddy was. And here's what I was doing. But uh, there's also 10,000 such and such outdoors channels yeah. on YouTube. Uh, everybody wants to be the next hunting public. Everybody wants to make it big. Everybody thinks that if I can just get a couple kills on camera, then I'll pick up sponsors and I can hunt for a living. Is that the case? Is no. That gonna, okay. No. <laughs> that's not, that's probably not going to happen. What, what do you say to the guy who is, who is saying, Hey, I'm considering, uh, getting a couple cameras and starting to do this. What do you say to that guy not knowing what his motivations are? Well, I would say to start out, you almost got to become a killer. I mean, you got to put deer on the ground or if you want to do a turkey show, put turkeys on the ground. You, you know, you, the number one thing is telling the story. So like when I first started out, I didn't tell a story with a darn, I, you know, I would just show a kill and that would be it. You know, there was no B shots. Like I didn't do anything behind the scenes, like me shooting my bow or filming anything like that. But I would say for the young hunter, killing some good deer so then you can kind of get recognized like that's how i like the sponsors sponsored us because of the box i i shot mm. it wasn't that you know hey we're just gonna go down and try to do a show you know i could have been just some joe blow that you know you don't know who they don't know who i am they're just gonna give us money to go down and hunt you know type <laughs> so you show them pictures and you know things that you've done then they'll trust you but when i first started doing it it you got to start cheap. Like I should have mm. never went out and got that big camera. Even though we, we did the show when we got almost last, <laughs> to be honest, because <laughs> we had no idea, but I mean, it did help us learn, but I would start cheaper with just a smaller camera, like a Canon, like GL one or whatever, the cheapest kind of pro model, but not where it's going to break the bank. Even a, a little cheaper, like three, $400 camera is, you just want to learn. You, the biggest thing is just practicing, st uh, telling a story, and your footage just of the, the deer coming in and staying on it. Because when you're first getting in it, especially if you're self-filming, the number one mistake for a young hunter or any hunter that's self-filming to begin with is that deer's coming in, you say heck with the camera, <laughs> you know? Because yep. your heart's going. You, you put all this work into it. You don't want to, you know just take your eyes off the deer and something happens or you don't get it on camera. You're just, there's too many things going on. So I would say get a cheap camera, 
And don't put so much pressure on you trying to get the deer. You're going to miss, if you're self-filming, it's going to go out of frame or something. Especially, you know, if it's a big buck, you're going to, you want the deer. (laughs) You know, you put so much time into it that uh, I would say just practicing, having it come in. And if you're able to do like a wide shot or get a couple of GoPros that, you know, they make them now that they're remote with the phone you know, maybe put them on the base of the tree. So turn them on and then you don't have to put so much pressure on you when you go to pull back, making sure that it's in the frame. It's just, I've done it for so long now that I, I have it down pat pretty good. I can stay calm and just think about where that deer, I can get them on film and, you know, get a clean kill and good footage. So for me, it's just, you got to practice just if you're a young guy, just getting the deer coming in, working on different like bee shots of like, I don't know, leaves and just squirrels, just stuff like that to keep your story going and always continue the story like every hunt. Mm. So like when you end, I was actually told a really good tip uh, by the Ozonics guys when we were down at the Midwest Whitetail meeting and they would, they said, don't show something or don't, they can't show it if you don't say it and if you don't say it, they can't show it. Mm. And they meant by like, if I say like, I saw three bucks this morning, but I don't have footage of it. Who's going to, you know, you, you're going to lose viewers from yeah. that. You just can't just start saying, you know, I, I, I was too lazy to film it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> my camera was in my backpack. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. You know, it's just stuff like that. And it was so true because you got it. The number one thing is keeping the story going from hunt to hunt to hunt and just, and it gets tiring because, like, if you don't see a deer, there's sometimes where I'll just, you know, should I even do a closing? Like, what? I didn't see anything. But mm-hmm. you have to because, yeah. you know, you just say, you know, I had a tough hunt. I'm going to just regroup, move on to the next day, and I'll see you back up in the tree and just go from there. So that's what I've learned in the past three years because years prior, if I had a bad hunt, I wouldn't even do a ending i'd be so frustrated or something you mm-hmm. know and i've gotten a lot better since <laughs> you know especially i mean the midwest whitetail guys you know with their film schools and all that they i mean they put that into us you just got to keep the story going sure so sure yeah so i heard in there start cheap um don't want to start too cheap though yeah all right yeah be a be a, a rough experience so um GoPros are are awesome. I bought my first GoPro this past year. Uh, what what would be a good? You mentioned a two, three, or four hundred dollar camera. What's a good like? Let's say there's the guy who's like, you know what? I want to come home and share um, these experiences with my family or or something. Like what what are we talking as far as price point? Where they need to be looking? I, I would say if they're not wanting to do a show or anything like that, probably around five hundred bucks. Okay, I would say. But if you want to do like some type of show or, you know, maybe you want to apply for Midwest whitetails or the hunting public or something. And you want to try to show your hunts on their shows. I would say probably around 2000 is what you're going to want to spend. Okay. And you want, you know, the extra microphone on top, the bigger one, Midwest whitetails want us to use wireless mics, which I don't always do, but it, it is better for the viewer and everything else. So I would say that and a GoPro, you know, Hero 9. I just, I love that 
little camera that you can just, if a deer's coming in, I just, I have it right on my phone. I can just hit that button, hit record, and it's going on me. And then I'm trying to film the deer coming. Hmm. So that way, if something happens, you've got the, yeah, you've got the shot at least. Yeah. Or, Cause or like some footage. when I went up the tree, when I broke the camera lens, those deer were, I mean, I just got up in there. I didn't have time to put my GoPro up. And so you had, you couldn't tell what happened. You know, there was no second angle on me, me busting the camera lens. So, you know, that, that kind of stunk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I couldn't share that. You know, I said it, but it would have been cool to see it. Sure. Yeah. You know. <laughs> it would have been cool to see you knocking your uh, camera in half and yeah. dropping it out of the tree. Yeah, the 3000 yeah, oh, camera. Yeah. So, but like I said, you don't need I mean, I think the shows now they want like some more of the 4K capabilities because mm-hmm. they can when they edit, they can zoom in more if it's in 4K to show like better footage, but uh 1080 a lot of the shows is what they're they're filming with. Yeah, so um, so you've been filming for a number of years with Midwest Whitetail. What would you say is sort of maybe just one of the most practical lessons that you've learned as far as um, making the hunt relatable and 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 making it entertaining, but also uh, a bit educational? Because I think you guys try to do that as well. Yeah. So what would what would you say is like the one takeaway that you're like, hey guys, if you're going to film your hunts, do this thing so it's worth watching. I just, I try to show everything that I do, Mm. like from now, like I already started filming in March and I filmed making my food plot in April, end of April, early May, and just step by step of how I go about doing things is what I'm I'm trying to do this year. Like, and a lot of shows, like no offense to like jewelry and like Kiskis, but they got their own farms. They're huge. You know, they got different leases. Like I watched a show at Drury's, they brought in bulldozers, excavators, they got a brand new piece of property and they made funnels and they put in a new food plot. Well, for the average guy, I, I'm not going to go out and get into a bulldozer, you know, <laughs> especially for five acres, you know. So you just try to, I try to show the tips and tricks that I do and, you know, how to walk in on certain winds and stuff like that to, to show the viewer and try to give them you know, some education on how they might be able to put it in their hunts. So, yeah, very good. Well, uh, so as you're talking about this or looking forward to this upcoming season, you said you're already filming, you know, bring it in, show them a little bit of everything that you're doing, all the little stuff that, that leads up to the season. What's something you're excited about this year as you look forward to deer season 2021? I'm excited about that double drop. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That buck, I just, if he makes it back, <laughs> he should be, a heck of a buck to go after this year and just very unique. So, and it, to me, like I'm always behind the eight ball for storytelling because the bucks in my area don't come until October, like mid October. So it's always kind of a, uh, like last year I, I got permission of this little three acre piece and I had a 170 inch buck on there and I had him in August and I had him one time in September. So it's like, do I go after that 170 or do I wait? till October to, you know, because the, the day that he showed in September was during daylight. So it's like, Uh. do I start going after him? And I did a couple of times, but I knew my best bet for that area because it's so small was going to be the rut. But then when that, the buck we nicknamed wide load started showing up and he was on camera almost every day. It's like, do I take the for sure thing 
that the, the neighbors aren't going to pass? Or do I go and sit every single day this small little acreage and try to make it happen? And I might waste my whole season. Mm. So I took the for sure thing. But right after I shot that buck, November 5th and 6th, that buck went through that little three-acre piece. And, oh. uh, <laughs> it was kind of a kick in the pants. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't think anybody got that deer. I didn't hear about it. Nobody brought one to that size to me or that I heard about. So so he may be still running around I'm hoping well. he's still, yeah, he made it. And I'm hoping maybe, yeah, I, I can get a crack at him this year. Because I, I set cameras up. I never hunted it. I hunted it two times. But uh, a lot of times when I get a new area, I won't even hunt it. I'll just set cameras up unless there's like a a monster buck or something. I try to put my cameras in different areas and try to figure out where they're coming in and out, you know, where they're betting and stuff like that. And just where my chances of getting a buck the following year is going to be the best for me. So like the place in Monroe, I didn't even bow hunt it. I got a brand new, it was like nine acres. But it's, in be- it's a funnel in between two bigger woods, and I set cameras up on a scrape, and I had some beautiful bucks walk by, even in September, but I just, I didn't want to educate them or anything, and I'm all set up for this year, and I should have a pretty good chance if any of those bucks made it. Nice. So, yeah. nice. so you're, you're setting those up, really, when you go in and set up trail cameras, you're kind of looking, not necessarily for right now, but you're also looking long distance into like yeah. next year and what. Yeah, you can get for that. Yeah, because there's stands like around my house that I've never even hunted. Oh wow! Like okay. I'll set them up, and I know they're in good areas because my the intel I get from the cuttybacks. But I, you know, I'll just I'll hunt the edges. Though those are my those spots are more like emergency spots. If I am struggling on field edges, I'll move in then. But when you move in, you chance of bumping deer more. Hmm. And the winds like to swirl around here, and I just, I don't know, I like to play it safe as long as I can, and don't panic until, to get in those bedding areas or, you know, those staging areas until, like, mid-November. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of neat to hear you talking about that, because, you know, uh, conservative hunting strategies have fallen on hard times. Yeah. With, uh, in in, uh, hunting media here lately, and, um, but because the thinking is, to have that kind of a strategy you need to be the guy with a thousand acres yeah. who can go out and hunt. You can't, you can't be careful on your property because uh, somebody else will go in and blow it out. If you know, if it's a permission piece, let's say yeah. somebody else is going to go in there and blow it out. So you might as well. It's kind of the, it's, yeah. my, it's kind of the thinking, yeah. but I, I see a wall full of deer here that say maybe there is room yeah. for a conservative approach. That's I, my dad taught me that when I was younger, just do not put a lot of, pressure on them because as soon as you start putting pressure even on the does you're going to make it harder for yourself um come time for that last week of october it's you're almost setting everything up at least i set everything up in my opinion for that last week of october and then first two weeks of november because uh you know a lot of times a bigger buck's not going to show during daylight up until you get closer to the rut and if you can keep the does there coming out those bucks are going to show you know so that's what it, it's worked for me and I just, I'm not a guy that likes to go in. My older brother's kind of like that. Just go all in and, uh, and it works for him. I sure. mean, he's, he's shot some dandies, but you know, I just, I have my own way and I just, I stick to that. So, yeah. And I, I think that's key. And I think that gets lost a lot is 
find the hunt that you enjoy. Yeah. Find what it is that you like to do and do that thing that you like. Don't think that you need to be Dan Infault sludging through the muck, yeah. you know, to, to get to that deer. Don't think you need to be whoever else who, you know, goes to the closest public land and walks in six miles. Yeah. Uh, you know, adapt to your situation, hunt like you want to hunt and enjoy it. And you'll probably find success if you uh, get out there and work hard, no matter what it is that you're and that you brought up a good point that's it's about putting in time yeah you know absolutely. and doing your scouting like i do a lot of shining even uh probably end of july i'll start shining okay because if there's a different area where i see a big buck and if i can get permission i'm gonna try to hunt them you know especially i'll keep areas in mind where i don't see like a whole lot of hunting pressure mm-hmm. and if i shine and if there's a good one i'll go up talk to the owner and you know it happened Four years ago, I got I saw a really nice buck uh, out in this bean field almost every single night in July and into August. And I went up and I asked the guy, and he hunted himself, but he was a big gun hunter, not a bow hunter. And so he let me hunt the edges of his property. And uh, the only problem was is that he loves to walk his dog at like prime time, you <laughs> know. <laughs> and I didn't know that, but uh, so I, I got permission, and he let me hunt on the edge there and i ended up seeing that deer one time but then he ended up getting hit by a car Ugh, like two days later gosh. so i thought right where i was just gonna you know start getting into his core area and have a good chance of getting him he got hit so oh man you know that that stuff happens you know yeah. especially when you're hunting smaller because that was only like a 20 acre parcel wow. so you know so yeah like I kind of get jealous of the jewelries and stuff because of their farms and how big, you know, and what they can do and they're planting their own food plots and leaving them up for the winter. And it's like, I, I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Not, not, not a reality for most of us. No. no. So then that's what I enjoy about Midwest whitetails. It's kind of the, you know, common middle-class guy going out and just working hard and getting it done. Yep. So for sure, you know, for sure. But yeah, I, I love to start my scouting about mid July and just keep right on it going. It, it's, I get addicted and it's just ever since I was 12. So. It's, hard to, it's hard to quit once you get going. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, it, we're going on about an hour and 15 minutes here, so I'll go ahead and wrap us up. But, uh, Josh, if people want to keep up with you or find out a little bit more about your taxidermy work or watch you on Midwest whitetail, where can they go to find more? Uh, for Midwest whitetails, you can go to YouTube and go to Midwest Whitetails Great Lakes and uh like the buck I shot this past year, I think the title of the hunt is two bucks in three days. So me and another guy uh shot a buck and it was like within three days of each other. So which wow. was pretty cool. And they were both really nice bucks. And then for my taxidermy, you can get a hold of me. My phone number is six oh eight two zero one eight three three eight. And uh also on Facebook you could find me, just put Merceburgers Rut Strut and Scream. And uh, you should be able to find. And I think I'm in Google too. I think my wife got me into that. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not computer savvy, so I just work on the heads. I love it. Your wife. Your wife got you into that. So somebody was t- talking to me the other day. They were like, "Yeah, you've got a lot of a lot of good stuff posted on Instagram." I never thought I'd see you on Instagram. I was like, "Oh, I, I don't do Instagram. Yeah. My my wife yeah. does Instagram, and yeah. she posts." all the stuff for me. Yeah. Uh, she's my, uh, I, I jokingly say she's my social media coordinator oh, yeah. for, uh, for the Wisconsin sportsman podcast. I should double her pay. Yeah. Which is zero. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you can also find me or if you want to follow my season at 
at Merce Josh on Instagram. Oh, cool. I like to okay. post a lot of things, uh, pictures and stuff as the season goes on, like different bucks that I might be going after. So, because there, there's sometimes I'll be honest, I don't post or put on camera every like that 170 I had. You never saw a picture of it because I didn't. <laughs> there's a lot of guys know where I hunt. Sure, sure. And you know, like when I first started hunting in Dane County, I was the only guy bow hunting in that area. And then when word got out. There was one year, especially, there was nine trucks. And we're talking, this is the bow hunting. You know, this isn't gun hunting wow. where you can, yeah, nine pickup trucks parked and hitting it hard for, you know, there's a couple of nice ones running around that year that I ended up shooting. But, you know, you get the popularity. That's one of the downfalls about being on a show. You kind of, I don't like to show everything. And, Keep things, some things a secret. If I know I'm going to get a good chance at the deer, like right before, I'll say something. But like that 170, I kept that those pictures to myself because I didn't want it, anybody to see the backgrounds or anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, you'll you'll notice on this podcast about as specific as I get is county. Okay, you know, maybe this is the county where I'm hunting in. You and I uh, have turkey hunted a similar place. Yeah, and the the name of which will never be aired on this podcast. Go find your own turkeys. Uh, anyway, so, well, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I'd love to have you on again, especially as we started talking about scouting there towards the end. I'm like, oh, there's this whole other world that I want to talk to you about, but I don't want to keep you up all night and away from your family. So Yeah, no, I appreciate being on here, and I look forward to doing it again if you'll have me. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Nope, thank you. Big thanks again to Josh for coming on the podcast. If you are looking for a taxidermist that you can trust who does great work in southern Wisconsin, Josh is your man. Give him a call. Uh, If you have any questions or once you take a deer this fall and you want to make sure that it's caped out right, uh, give Josh a call and uh, he'll get you taken care of. This is 4th of July weekend. Get outside, enjoy the freedom that is ours, and make sure to take advantage of the amazing resources available at our fingertips as Wisconsin sportsmen. See you next time. Thank you.